going to talk about the women of the apostolic tradition. And I'm going to give you several scripture references. If you have your personal Bible, you might want to open them as I introduce them and maybe mark them as a way of, you know, maybe you put tabs on it or, you know, I happen to be one of these guys that thinks that everybody should have at least one Bible that they write all over. You know, you can have one to put on the coffee table and look at closed because that's what most of us do, right? But then you might have one that you actually read through and mark up and dog ear the pages. And now that's the one I enjoy when I see those in people's hands. And you might put little W's next to these references as I bring them up so that you can remember these are the women of the apostolic tradition. And I mentioned that in the context of our series that we've been working through called the apostolic tradition where we're kind of looking at the personalities of the various people of the Bible in the New Testament in particular who gave us their firsthand account of relationships with Jesus that was, you know, they were charged to, to transmit into the future. And it, one of my intentions was that we might get to know their personalities as well as their message in part so that we could be more like them. Because what I've noticed is maybe you have is that over the history of the church, we tend to drift away from the apostolic tradition and become more committed to our own traditions. That was my secret uh, desire with this series, you know. I was, it was to say, let's develop a new old tradition, the apostolic tradition, because churches have a tendency to do things the way they've always done them, and then nobody really knows why. And what's worse is sometimes we find out that there's nothing particularly biblical about what we've always done. So I figure a guy in my position has a responsibility to uh, kind of put the brakes on periodically and say, okay, so what are we here for anyway? <laughs> We're here to carry on the apostolic tradition. And it turns out that there are several wonderful women in the New Testament who carry on the apostolic tradition in a way that only women can. So uh, basically I want you to hear these examples and like I said, mark them in your Bible and consider that they are people who have a unique offering to the apostolic tradition that comes not only from their femininity, but also from their cultural context of womanhood. And so you have to see that plainly too. And I think it actually makes them even more astounding and wonderful examples because with Jesus's inspiration, with the help of the Holy Spirit, they often defy their cultural norms and, uh, it's really, really pretty awesome. Now, as the women of the Bible in the New Testament in particular unfold, there's probably no one more famous or better known to us than Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, she is worthy of her own Sunday service, and that's why I'm going to talk about her next Sunday. 
So Mary gets her own Sunday like the apostles did because she deserves some special time and consideration. But in the meantime, we'll talk about several others. I basically listed every woman that plays a role in the New Testament in some way or another because I thought, well, if they got mentioned, there must be a good reason. And if they got mentioned for a good reason, then I should mention them here because it seems like a good idea. So the next Mary that you probably have heard of quite frequently, especially if you're a Chosen fan, is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary's last name is actually just a variation on the name of the village she's from. She's from a village called Magdala, which was a fishing village, and uh, actually quite a, a spectacular village. We got to visit that uh, Magdala excavation on uh, our trip to Israel a few years ago, and it looked like a pretty going concern, you know, not not just a little collection of, of uh, huts or something along the shore. They had a synagogue, and you know, it was it was a real uh, su- substantial town. And uh, so, Mary, as you may know, oh, by the way, her scripture references Luke chapter eight. Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 16. And by the way, these sermon notes this week are two pages. I have, I have this rule that you may or may not have heard me state that the, the, everything I try to give you in print, I try to keep it to one piece of paper. And that's not always easy, trust me. This week, the new sermon notes are two pieces of paper stapled together. Um, You might want to grab one because that's a collector's item. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that it has all these scripture references next to the names of these women. And it it will be, I think, an excellent study tool. If we run out of paper copies out there, you should know that I email you a copy of the sermon notes, the newsletter, and uh, some other valuable information every Monday if you're on our mailing list. So make sure that you're on our mailing list and you'll get those that way as well. Anyway, Mary is this person who was demon-possessed. And she was somebody who had a uh, uh, quite a collection of them, actually. <laughs> and uh, Jesus freed her from that oppression by these demons. Jesus healed her. And she was so devoted to Jesus after that that she never left his side. And Mary is somebody who shows us what deep love and loyalty really looks like. And this commitment to him that comes from having been saved by him. Her example is something that all of us should take to heart because Mary is the epitome of a person who has had her life changed radically by Jesus and therefore she has dedicated her life to him ever since. And there's a message for all of us there because you know what I said a minute ago about church traditions sometimes sort of replacing apostolic tradition over time. And a lot of times people are really dedicated to the church and to the traditions of the church 
but they don't act much like they've actually had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. And that's unfortunate because that is the kind of stuff that attracts people to him. When people see how radically he has changed your life, when people hear your testimony, when they can't miss the fact that you are a new person in Christ, they're intrigued. And if you wonder why, you know, churches are dying and closing all over the country right now, I'm sorry to say this so bluntly, but it's because so many churches were more dedicated to their own traditions than they were to new birth in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it is Mary who shows us what it's like to go from being the devil's handmaiden, in a manner of speaking, being somebody that is driven by the devil's agents to being completely born again in Jesus' love and having been made new by the Holy Spirit. And for that, she will never stop loving him. Mary is a super important person for us in the story of the apostolic tradition. And why is it that women are just naturally more likely to demonstrate such profound change than men? What is it about us men? Why are we so stubborn? Why are we so proud? Why are we so afraid to feel as though something else is in control or to demonstrate that we've submitted ourselves to a higher authority? Why is that? I don't know the answer, but I can tell you that one of the best reasons for studying the women of the Bible is, is that they have a natural ability to submit in a way that is imposed upon them by societies for uh, generations, and yet they've also learned how to be very strong in that role. And men, we really could learn a lot from how women change their lives to serve Jesus. We could learn a lot. Let's look at some of the others, for example. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Now, she was not uh, listed in Scripture as a follower of Jesus, but she was definitely on board with God's New Testament plan. And she was a woman who was past the age of being able to conceive, and yet she was informed uh, that she was going to conceive, having been barren all of her life. And this was a great disgrace in her society, and it was something that made uh, a woman feel ashamed and, and, and somehow worthless. And yet, she kept the faith, and she believed. You know, it was said of Sarah in the Old Testament that she chuckled when she got the news, as if to say, yeah, right. Elizabeth chuckled because she was glad it finally happened. Yay, you know, and... Here's two of them, right? You know, exciting news that she was someone who had been worthy of carrying God's special messenger, John the Baptist. And you know the story. We'll read it in a couple of weeks as part of the Christmas story, how Mary went to uh, see her cousin Elizabeth. And when she entered the room and cast, you know, threw out her greeting into the courtyard, as soon as the baby in Elizabeth's womb heard the voice of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Yeah, you know, my Savior just came in, you know, 
Uh, babies in the womb, they're real people. They're fully de developed souls. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to say that. They are fully developed people in the making, and they are worthy of life. So anyway, Elizabeth is proof of lifelong faith and perseverance. And I suspect that although it must have troubled her, Elizabeth was probably someone who carried herself with a certain dignity and self-respect that defied the societal norms. And that's probably one of the reasons that she's given such a glowing uh, report in scripture. You can read about her in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, and verses 39 to 45. Hmm? No, I thought I heard somebody giving another. Hey, I, I, you know, I take any help I can get with this process. Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. This is the story that I think some uh, people, especially the ladies of the church, find amusing and interesting. And you probably remember them as you read through Luke 10 and John 11 and John 12 as being the sisters of Lazarus who died and Jesus raised from the dead. And you might remember that when they first come into the picture with Jesus, uh, he's staying with them and teaching in their front room. And one of the sisters is uh, sitting, Martha is, is at the uh, back room in the kitchen, so to speak, preparing food and serving all the people who have come to hear Jesus. And Mary's the one that's sitting at Jesus's feet along with everybody else. And then Martha says to Jesus, hey, you want to tell her to get off her butt and help out? <laughs> Did I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we hear the other night, Laura, that's the message version. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never listened to Tim Hawkins, I advise you to check him out. He's pretty good. So what we learn then is that the two of them represent balance. Balance that's really important in the lives of all believers. Sometimes you just need to sit quietly and listen for the voice of God. Listen to Jesus. Let him inspire you. Meditate on the word. There are other times, though, when he needs you to be busy doing things. And the things he will always have you doing are serving Serving, You might notice that in many occasions as I write to you about upcoming worship services and things, I always have a certain little trifecta that I mentioned that we're going to worship, learn, and serve together, right? You know, worship first, learn, and then serve. And I get that basically from the Bible and this particular story demonstrates it really well. They were learning and serving. Martha needed to sit down and learn, and Mary needed to get up and help. Both of them did. They both needed to make adjustments. And so we, too, have to learn from them that there are equal measures of both in our Christian living. 
The next woman I want to introduce you to is the Samaritan woman at the well. You read about her in John chapter 4, and you probably have heard this story, but she is the woman who Jesus seems to have set a divine appointment with. And the reason we say that is because there is no other reason this would have happened than except that Jesus intended for it to happen. The woman was known in her community to be someone who had many boyfriends, five husbands, and was living with a guy at the time. And so to say that her life was colorful would be a bit of an understatement. And for that reason, she wasn't popular with the more decent women in town, which meant that she didn't visit the well at the same time the rest of them did. And Jesus knew this and showed up exactly when she came to the well. And his conversation with her basically indicated that he knew everything about her. And it started really sinking in as he was talking that uh, the, this woman is beginning to realize that he seems to know things about her that nobody else would know. You know, it's one thing to say what everybody knows, but when you start telling somebody things that they have no basis, that you have no basis for knowing. And when you tell people something about themselves that only the spirit could reveal, that'll get their attention. And it certainly got this woman's attention. But what we learned from her more than anything is how to respond to truth in love when it hits us right between the eyes. See, a lot of times we try to share truth and love in our shared journey of faith here in the family, and it offends people, or it causes them to, to kind of shut down and deflect it automatically without really hearing it. You know, they, they've managed to somehow resist it from a subconscious level, and so the truth just sort of deflects off of us or slides away, and... Uh, this woman is showing us how you respond to truth and love. And what she does is she gradually, it dawns on her that this is the Messiah and that he has made no distinction related to her cultural uh, problems with her own people and the problems of Samaritans with Jews and so on. Here is a Jew, here is their Messiah that they all are looking for, both Samaritans and the Jews of Jerusalem. They're all looking for the Messiah and she realizes she's encountered him. And the first thing she realizes is that he's not judging her for her lifestyle and he's not judging her for being Samaritan. He's simply offering free of charge, the water that gives eternal life. A figurative statement, but one that we are still trying to embrace and use every day of our lives. It's living into the eternal life that Christ gives us because we're forgiven of our sins. So the water of eternal life is water of baptism. It is a water that is sustaining since the one thing we can't live without is water. And so what does she do, this woman? Despite her reputation, despite her, her uh, lifestyle, she's been changed by this experience with Jesus and she goes back to her community and tells everybody she knows. 
And naturally, the people that looked down on her probably considered her just a little crazier than ever and a little bit dirtier than ever. But the people around her who were also sinners, who are also considered uh, less than ideal citizens, they heard a message that they were hungry for, and they followed her back to meet the Messiah. So what is the lesson from the Samaritan woman? We all have a constituency. We all have the power to influence certain people. And if we're not using our influence to tell people what we know about Jesus, that's why we call it witnessing or sharing your testimony. You're not expected to go preach to people. You're not expected to be an expert on the Bible. You're not expected to do any of that. You are expected to tell your story, to say what you know about Jesus. And so you can tell the people with whom you have the most influence and the people who are uh, sharing affinity with you, hey, you know what? This is what I know about my relationship with Jesus. Or as the famous line goes, my life was this way, then I met Jesus, and now my life is this way. You can do that. You should do that. The Samaritan woman did it, and if anybody had a reason not to, it would have been her. But she couldn't help herself. See, the thing she brought to this experience was something the rest of us probably don't understand. She had nothing to lose. I mean, you know, people will listen to her and either write her off the way they already do, or they'll hear her because they're absolutely surprised by what they're hearing. So you have nothing to lose. See, once your reputation is shot, you don't have to worry about losing your reputation, do you? <laughs> Something to think about. Not that I'm advising you to go out and, you know, get a bad reputation, but you know, maybe we are just a little too wound up. You know, a lot of us overthink things and we actually believe that there are more dangers out there than there are, especially to our pride and our reputation. You know, well, who are you trying to influence anyway? Who are you trying to impress? There's the problem in a nutshell. She didn't have anybody to impress and she wasn't influential over anybody until she brought back news of a Messiah who knew everything about her and still offered her grace and eternal life. There was a widow that Jesus watched and talked about. She had two mites that she donated, and she is someone you can read about in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 21. And this widow was someone who Jesus singled out because she knew how to give. She knew how to give. You know, can I be honest with you? Giving's a little down right now here at Shiloh. I don't know why. I try not to worry about it, and I refuse to stand up here and talk about money every Sunday, as some churches often do. But I will tell you that what we can learn from this woman should affect how we worship with our offerings to God. See, you can give your money to God in a variety of ways, but because you've chosen to be a part of this house of worship, the idea is that this is the place where you make your offerings to God. I mean, you know, it's just like there's one biblical tradition that we maintain in the church, but we forget why. Giving isn't about you. 
In fact, it's the best way you can empty yourself before God so that God knows that you know who you came to worship today. That's demonstrated through this woman. You see, she didn't have much at all. And all she had to give that day were two mites. Now, I have one that I got on a trip to Israel that is from that era. They're, they're so, they were so common and so ubiquitous that people will sometimes excavate in their own backyard and find them, you know. But this is, this is a coin that is actually a little smaller than the button on my shirt. Because back then, coins were pretty much equal in size to their worth. So this is, this is all this woman has. And she gives it quietly, sort of sneaking by, maybe a little embarrassed by how little she has to give. And Jesus points out that she has given more than the guy who went right before her with an entourage and, you know, one of those giant checks they use for pictures on Facebook. It says, I'm putting a check in the drawer here, you know, and they make a big show of it and they want everybody to know what they did. And Jesus says, you know, she gave more. She gave more. She gave all she had. See, worship through giving has to be sacrificial. And this is not a preacher trying to get you to give money to the church. This is just a lesson from the Bible that this woman teaches us. And we need to learn from this lesson that God wants us to be cheerful givers, but more than that, he wants us to give as a sign of who we really think this is about. You know, so many people have worked up these quid pro quo sort of equations in their heads with God. Well, God, if I give you this, then you're guaranteeing me that I'll get that. Really? And you know what invariably happens to people who think that way about God is sooner or later something happens where they feel like God hasn't kept up God's end of the bargain and they lose their faith, you know? And they rewrite their whole understanding of who God is based on the fact that God didn't give me what I want. God's not Santa Claus, you know? God is in this for a relationship with you. God has ordered everything God ever did for human knowledge. In other words, everything we know about God tells us that God's purpose is to have a relationship with us, the sons and daughters of Adam. And his ultimate purpose is that we sons and daughters of Adam would be a bride for his beloved son. The widow has earned the beloved son's admiration with her two tiny coins. And we should learn from that. There are several other women to talk about. I'm gonna have to pick up my pace a little bit. Priscilla is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. And uh, she's mentioned verses one to three and then 24 to 28. Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, Timothy 4. The girl is busy. The woman is busy. She shows up in all those books. And, and you might notice that she's usually mentioned with her husband, Aquila. And uh, she was particularly known for her hospitality. And she was known 
for being someone who was a leader in the Christian community. I think Priscilla is a good example of, of the best version of what I call church ladies. In fact, I used to say when I was in seminary, either the first time or the second time, I can't remember now, but I used to say all the time they should offer a course for pastors called Church Lady 101. Because if you don't know how to deal with the church ladies when you get to a church as a pastor, there will be consequences. Now you're laughing because you're thinking of the church ladies that aren't necessarily modeled after Priscilla. But in order to raise up Priscilla's, you've got to work through the other ones who are well-intentioned often. But Priscilla's somebody who is in so many ways the, the behind every great man, there's a great woman. She's that. Like, she's somebody who... Uh, People like Paul and Aquila and many of the other uh, Apollos, for example, these are guys that were busy helping to grow the church in the, in the early seasons of the church era, and behind the scenes, she's pulling it all together. You know, I would be so incomplete without the Priscillas in my world. My dear friend Katrina is a Priscilla in my world. You know, she just takes care of business in ways that help me succeed. And she doesn't ask for credit for anything. Uh, my beloved bride is a Priscilla for so many, in so many ways. There's plenty of them around. They're just these remarkable people who don't ask for a lot of credit and don't need to be, you know, admired in the way that men often do. But they get things done. And... There's a, there's a direction you can see this going, because now I'll get to Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe's an example from Romans 16. And one of the things you begin to notice as the women of the New Testament progress into the early church age is that they all have a contextualized uh, traditionally female role in their society. So their, their rights are somewhat limited and, and there are certain ways that women are always oppressed throughout the ages. But there is a clear indication that the church, the body of Christ, the, the church that Jesus established and the apostles affirm for our tradition is a church that doesn't view women as inferiors in any way but simply partners in the ministry of men. And men and women are partners in this ministry. And it's okay that women do it the way women do and men do it the way men do. But whenever one side or the other thinks the other side will never be able to do it right. You know, because sometimes in church, I hear things said about men by the women that, uh, well, you know, some of those ladies, if they spit on the ground, that grass never grows there again. I mean, and then I, and then I have to say to them, now that's not very Christian. And of course, they usually turn back on me and say the same thing. Well, sometimes you're not very Christian, and so we have a lot of work to do when this happens. But Phoebe and Dorcas and Lydia and 
Euodia and Synchthe. God gave us Euodia and Synchthe just so that we could have trouble pronouncing their names. <laughs> These are all women who teach us the significance of relationships. See, men aren't very good at that. And a lot of the apostles, if you watch the progression of their lives, what you realize is, is they had to unlearn how to be macho men of their era. And they had to learn how to be sensitive, strong and gentle at the same time. They had to learn how to be uh, subservient and yet willing to take charge when needed. They had to learn all of these things and most of the women around them already knew how to do that. They didn't have to learn it, but the men did. And so what you notice is that by the end of their lives, the apostle men have become in many ways a lot like the women in the spirit of their Christian living. By that I mean they began to realize the importance of relationships. They began the, to realize the importance of nurture. They began to realize the significance of following Christ in his love as a gentle shepherd. And it just so happens that men, we really can learn a lot from the women and that we should embrace the partnership between men and women in the Bible and the apostolic tradition. And the church has always been a place where we value that tradition, but because we forget why, we get more incensed by the fact that some of those things that seem so sacred are being threatened nowadays, but we haven't really said why. We haven't figured out why. And so we just get mad about it. And then that's why a lot of people don't come to church because they're like, well, you people are hypocrites and you're always mad about something. And we have to be people who get back to the apostolic tradition of being partners in ministry to the community in the name of Jesus Christ. And when people start to see us as nurturing mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, when they start realizing there's this family of God that gathers in this place and that all these relationships are complementary and mutually beneficial, when they start to see that, they're seeing the church the way Jesus intended it to be. And that's what we're striving for. And so I pray that that will happen here. And I don't think that it's ever too late for any of us to change. And the first thing that has to change is to learn from someone like Mary Magdalene that when Jesus changes your life, it shouldn't be something that isn't visible to the people around you. You go from having him save you from eternal damnation and he saves you from your own natural sin. And that ought to be something that changes you in such a profound way that you're loyal and devoted to him for the rest of your days, just like Mary Magdalene and all of these ladies. And we all need to live that way. And when we start doing that in harmony with each other, like the family God makes us, we'll be a force in this community that is unique in every way and often even unique among churches because they tend to lack that. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I appreciate how you've burned it into our hearts in such a profound way. 
If I've said anything that isn't consistent with your spirit, just erase it from people's memories and now embolden us to live it for your glory. Amen.